0: Well, we have just finished a section uh, of Corinthians over a long period of months, chapters 8 through 10, that have dealt with idolatry, we've dealt with um, really uh, prizing things in a way that you shouldn't, and freedom, how to use your freedom in a way that glorifies God. And we're beginning a new section, really section 11 through 14, where Paul, it appears, continues to deal, it appears as though he is continuing to deal with questions that might have been brought up by the church. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now concerning things about which you wrote. And it appears that uh, he, and we're talking about head coverings here today. I see that one of you uh, prepared beforehand. That's right. Good. Well done. Um, I think, uh, so he deals first of all with head coverings uh, for members of the church, for ladies and head covers for men, whether they should or shouldn't. And then He deals with a question in chapter, um, the rest of chapter 11, dealing with communion and right attitudes during communion and behavior during communion. Chapters 12 through 14 serves as a a unit on its own, talking about spiritual gifts, specifically the uh, more showy gifts like speaking in tongues and what their place was in the early church. And so we'll be looking at all of those issues, beginning with this first section. Uh, I'm not sure how far I'm going to get today, but... Uh, we're going to go ahead and read verses 2 through 16 of First Corinthians chapter 11, which says this. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, Or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is, a, is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Well, since these verses are so clear and they just kind of speak for themselves... What I'd like to do this morning is just move on to verse uh, 17, and we're going to be talking about communion. That's what I'd like to do. <laughs> Though it seems like some of you may have some questions. So let's just get them all out there in the open. As you're reading this, you know the, the difference between a good message and a bad message, whether the, the, the teacher has served you in the church, is when you first read the passage, you have a certain level of understanding of the text. You've probably read it before, you've heard it before, and there's certain things in there that you have a grasp of theologically. The question is, when you go home this afternoon, if, somebody, if you were to open up the text again try to explain it to somebody, would you have a deeper understanding of the text? And so that's really the test between an effective message and an ineffective message, whether or not the pastor or preacher or teacher has served you. And so, in this text, we're going to take as long as we need to, but I want to serve you. What are some initial questions you have when you just see this text? Yes. Why does the New King James say wife, Why does the New King James say wife? and the version that I said says woman? Right, yeah, okay, good. Yes. Excuse me, can you just turn your head for that? Okay, yeah, so... Verse fourteen, men with long hair—is that a cultural thing? All right. Uh, anybody else have a question about that? Blake? No. Okay. All right. All right. Good. All right. Yes. What kind of head coverings? What kind of head coverings? Yeah. What are we talking about? We talk about head coverings. Yes. Yes. How come Jewish people wear head coverings or yarmulkes when they're walking around or head coverings or shawls when they pray, um, which actually is a 4th century AD tradition that began around then, but and that's a good question, yes. Okay, yeah. Does this apply to the church today? And if so, which parts of it apply? Come, yes. Yes. Yeah, dishonoring the head. What kind of head is that? Is that a literal head? Is that a figurative head? If so, which head are we talking about? Yes. What does this have to do with the angels? Yeah, that's kind of just thrown in there, of course, because of the angels. Right. Yes. Are women also made in the glory of God? Or or are they just there to glorify men? Or are they the glory of men? Or is, is it because they're so beautiful that... Anything good that come out of man is uh, evidenced in a woman. These are all questions that we're we're asking. These are the right questions. When I sat down and I said, here are the questions I'd like to answer in this series, which will probably take two or three weeks, maybe longer, um, these are the questions that as I read, I began to ask almost immediately, what is the meaning of the word head? That's important. Why are women why are women prophesying in church? Why are they prophesying? Are they in church? Especially in the fact in the light of chapter uh, in the light of chapter 14 where women are told to be silent in church. How does covering your head relate to the length of your hair? How is the woman the glory of man? What do angels have to do with authority on a woman's head? Verse 10. What was going on historically that prompted Paul to write this section? Should women today wear a veil or cloth on their head when they worship? Is it wrong for men today to have long hair? So these are all questions I hope to deal with uh, if you have one of those that's really important to you, keep that in mind, and if we come to the end of a section where that verse speaks about it, be sure to ask that at the end if we have time that, uh, that, so we can get the answers to all of these. But really, I want to just jump right in and start going through this verse by verse. I've broken it into four sections from verses 2 to 16, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. We're going to see four desires for the church that should help you glorify God with his design for the roles of men and women, four desires for the church that should help you to glorify God by understanding God's roles for men and women. And the the title of this series is Headship and the Roles of Men and Women. Headship and the Roles of Men and Women. Four desires. Paul desired, and I'll give them to you right off the bat so we can kind of keep our our minds clear while we go through this, but the first desire, is Paul desired in verses two and three, that the church know about headship, that you know about headship, that you, you have an understanding of it, a knowledge of it. Second desire for the church is that you apply headship. You apply the principles of headship laid out in verses two and three, and you apply them, and then an example is given in, in verses four through six, so that you know about headship and you apply headship. Then in verses 7 and tw- 7 through 12, there's a lot of explanation. So there's a desire that you understand headship. That you understand headship. And then fourthly, in verses 13 through 16, that you practice headship. So Paul desired that the church know about headship, verses 2 and 3. Apply headship, verses 4 through 6. Understand headship, verses 7 through 12 and practice headship, verses 13 through 16. The first section we find in verses two and three, know about headship. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you, but I want you to understand the word there is a common word for knowledge, to know, and some of your versions may even translate that as to know, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Paul begins in verse 2 by expressing expressing gratitudes for what they did know, and that's significant for this letter because there's not a whole lot that Paul expresses gratitude for when it comes to the Corinthian church. In the very opening, verse 4, chapter 1, he says, I thank my God always concerning you, but there were a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. We've seen that they prized people above the other. They were divided. They were fragmented. They had problems with sexual immorality. They had problems with idol worship. You'll see there's problems in this chapter with um, coming to communion in such an ungodly manner that God was disciplining them with sickness, and even some of them were dying because of it. Um, they were spiritual gifts they were really um, uh, had difficulties with. But when it came to doctrine and what he had taught them, evidently, unless he's being sarcastic here, which I don't think it's the case, some commentators think he's being sarcastic. But he talks about teaching here. He says in verse um, uh, he says in verse two, "The traditions." Now I praise God because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The word traditions there is a word that can be defined by context. It's a word that's used sometimes negatively, speaking of Jewish traditions that were meaningless and that people valued more than the word of God. But the same word also can refer to teaching, that is, scripture teaching from God's word or teaching from the revelation by an apostle. The same word is used in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and in many versions translated as teachings. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, it says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And so the teachings, the writings, the revelation from God, the word of God, seems to be used in a very positive sense in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. The same word here, translated in most versions, traditions, but he also qualifies it by talking about the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth pastoring them. He had taught them day and night. He had, he had ministered to them again and again and again, and at least there was something. In fact, that's one of the things that we find about um, the, the letter to the Corinthians, which is so surprising, is that there's very little doctrine that needs to be corrected, heresy and so forth that's spreading throughout. And that's confusing to us because often behavior is informed by doctrine. And so they seem to have a relatively good handle on the doctrine that was taught to them. But Paul praises them for the teachings that they had remembered and contrasted them with something else he wanted them to know. And that phrase implies the fact that this is something I didn't teach you, but I want you to know this. I want you to understand this. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. In that verse, we find foundational precepts about headship, Presented to them. This is kind of the thesis that he's getting at. Everything else will flow off of this, for these first two verses. That he, he wants them, he's grateful for them, and that they understand certain things. He wants them to understand, however, uh, what it is about headship. And he gives three examples of headship that sort of ser- serve as a basis or a foundation for what they will be applying or living in the church. And so. The first example we find of headship is the example of Christ, verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Now, there's been much written about this one word, kephale, kephale. We get the word uh, encephalitis or encephalitis, depending on whether you're European or American, but it's this idea of uh, a brain disease, uh, the head, um, and that one word, chapters, books, commentaries filled with all kinds of information about that one word. And it seems like the more commentaries come out, the more they focus on that word. What does it mean? Well, uh, basically there are three possibilities as to what he refers to when he uses that word head. One is the literal head. That is that that part of the body that sits on your neck and takes up the space in between your ears. He's talking about your head, a literal head. So when I talk about a literal head, we are, we're referring to that part of your body where the brain is uh, inside that part of your body. And we, we see that example, a, a literal interpretation of verse 4, every man who has something on his head. He's talking literally about your head there. Um, but... Um, The other two examples of scriptural uses of the word head are both metaphorical, that is, they are symbolic. And the first use that is quite popular today is that head means source. And there are many passages in scripture where a head refers to the source of something. For example, like we would say, well, where's the head of the river? And we mean the source of the river. Where does it begin? Where does it originate? And that's an appealing metaphor for um, for this because there is a verse here in the passage, verse eight, that speaks about origin. Um, it says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And so we have this idea of, Origin right here, and a lot of people say, "Well, head here." Every time you read it in a metaphorical sense, he's talking about the source. And um, so, in fact, um, those who say that it's speaking about the source, um, as support for that view, they say that it's referring. Um, well, let me give you the third. The third. Um, Use. The third use, which is also metaphorical, is that we're speaking about somebody in authority, like the head of a company, or Christ is the head of the church, an authoritative role which by its own inference requires submission. So there are those who say, yeah, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's not talking about the authority there. He's talking about a source or the origin. And as an argument for that, they're saying that the use of this word referring to a leader or an authority figure is so rare in Greek literature that some commentators, one commentator I read, Morris, said this concept was unknown. The Greeks wouldn't even have an idea of it. And so uh, there was this idea that in the first century, the idea that if you said the word head, nobody would think of a a pyramid scheme with your CEO on top, right? They would think more of, oh, the source of things. Um, And um, another argument is that in antiquity, in the first century that is, the functions of the central nervous system were not as well understood as they are today. So whereas we look at the head and we say, hey, man, this is where your brain's at. Obviously, your, your head tells you to do this. You do this. It tells you not to do that. You don't do that. If you're, you're feeling pain, doctor says it's all in your head. You say, yeah, well, that's where all the nerves go. They go to my head. That's, of course, that's where it is, you know? Um, uh, you know, there's one, of the, one of the most fascinating books I ever read was a, a, good, a book by um, Brand. Uh, Dr. Brand, where he says uh, it's called pain, the gift that nobody wants. And he says one of the ways you treat pain, one of the ways they experiment with it is when you have pain on one side of your body or something like that, they try and stimulate pain everywhere else and kind of jam up the circuits so that you don't feel it in that place. And I'm like, well, well, then I'll feel it somewhere else. But uh, it it just um, we learn a lot about the body and the nervous system. and, And oftentimes in biblical literature, you read that the seat of decision-making. The mission control center is the heart. Throughout the Old Testament, the heart is seen as your mission control center. And the the seat of emotions in antiquity were your bowels, your stomach. that, That stomach feeling, that's where they thought emotions resided. We, in our culture today, think of the heart as a seat of emotions and the mind as your mission control center. And so it's important that we don't read a um, uh, a modern understanding of medicine back into an ancient document. This is the argument given by many. Um, another argument is that what I already read there is, is from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. Also, I think in verse 12, uh, the woman originates from the man. So also, the man has birth through the woman. So there's this origin idea. But for those who hold that the metaphorical idea or the symbolism here does refer to authority, and I'm one of those. I think that when he uses this metaphorically, he's talking about the authority, the chief. And if you read, like for example, in the verse that we're looking at now, verse three, all three times the word head is used, it's metaphorical. So you read it and it says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. You have to ask yourself, is he saying the source of every man? or the authority of every man? The man is the head, is the authority of a woman, or is it the source of a woman? So those are, those are the questions that you're asking. Um, is it because, is he saying that because woman was taken out of man's rib, or is he saying that because woman uh, has to submit to man? And so when we think about that, and the we think about this idea of authority. Um, there are some considerations, some arguments why many commentators and, and pastors, and myself included, believe that we're talking about authority here. We're talking about submission. And one of the reasons is because the word authority is actually found in our passage. In 1 Corinthians 11.10, 10 Therefore, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Some argue, says, Well, that authority is the woman's authority, not the man's authority, but. Nonetheless, the word authority is in our passage, and so there are authority issues here. Finally, um, in verse 4, uh, oh, so another, okay, another, another argument is that it's not as uncommon as people might think to find in Greek literature the word head as speaking to authority. And you know this, because there are passages you're familiar with where head, obviously, in the Bible, is speaking about authority. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body, Ephesians 5.23, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let wives be to their own husbands in everything. So there we have the clear teaching. He's not talking about a source there. He's talking about submission to leadership, to headship, same word there for head. And as the church, a lot of times people say, well, you know, doesn't, the woman doesn't always have to submit to her husband. You know, she can submit to, uh, uh, husband can submit, they can take turns. It's mutual submission. I submit to you, you submit to me. But there's a parallel statement here. The wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. We can't, if we can say the husband can submit to the wife, we have to say that, that Christ will have to submit to the church. And that sounds Catholic. It just, it just doesn't sound right, does it? And so, when we, when we, we think about that, even, even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was around in the first century, and we find Old Testament passages where they took words that clearly mean chief, ruler, and they used the word head in Greek, same word here. One of them is from 2 Samuel 22, verse 44, the words of David, when he cried out and said, you have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know are subject to me, end quote. Second Samuel twenty-two forty-four. Clearly speaking about authority there. Another example would be Isaiah um, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Again, I'll just give you that reference. Um, but there we have another example from the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament where Authority, the word head is used to communicate authority. And so, um, finally, just if if you're not quite convinced yet, you're thinking, well, how do I really know? Take a look at the immediate context of verse 3. Christ is the head of every man. All right? Now, does that mean that Christ is the source of every man? Well, let's start with the middle one. The man is the head of a woman. If you're saying the source, and it's because the woman was taken out of the rib of man, and so a piece of man became woman, it's not really true that every person uh, came out of Christ and that we all have a piece of Christ, and that's our source. It's even clearer in verse 4 with the third example, God is the head of Christ. The word um, Christ was not made out of a piece of God. Christ's source is not God. Christ is the authority over every man. Man is the authority over woman, if we say, take this to mean authority or ruler. God is the authority over Christ because while Christ was on this earth, he willingly submitted to the authority of the Father time and time again. Luke twenty two forty two, 42, not my will, but thy will be done. This is Christ submitting to the will of the Father. Still God. Christ is equal with God. He is co-equal, co-eternal, fully God. He was, God's not the source of Christ. The Trinity has existed for all eternity. So it's hard to understand this passage it's, it's more difficult to understand this as if you're saying source. And, and really, when it comes down to it, one wonders if the reason why so many modern-day scholars prefer the word source to authority is that maybe we're being more influenced from our culture when we interpret the Scripture rather than letting the Scripture speak for itself and affect us in our culture. Because everything in our society today screams that no way should women submit to men. So it, that can't be what the Bible's saying. And so, oh, I love this idea that it could be source because, oh, yeah, source, well, Adam and Eve or whatever you're going to say, source means. So all kinds of other hermeneutical gymnastics, but interpret, rules of interpretation kind of just being, oh, well, let's do this and let's do this to make it fit, sometimes can certainly be affected by culture. Our society does not like to hear that women should submit to men. The fact that I just say that, there are people who listen to this and they just, the the hair on the backs of their neck just bristle up. And if they have short hair, you can see it, right? (laughs) Which is not really related to our text. But um, society doesn't. In marriage, society does not think that women should submit to men. But Ephesians 5 says, in everything, as unto the Lord. And the reality is that God's design for the home is that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church, which is sacrificial, which is a type of love that he submits to what's best for the Lord's glory. He submits to what's best for her. And she submits to him. Now, obviously, if he asks her to do something that goes against the word of God, whether it be something big like don't tell him I'm selling drugs at church or whatever, you know, you, you don't have to do that. This gets us back to last week's discussion, which I want to stay away from. But uh, um, uh, or if it's something small like um, tell him I'm not here. You don't have to submit to that because If somebody's asking you to lie, that goes against God's word, and so you do not submit to that. But in everything else, obviously, uh, there are difficult circumstances where where submission is required. Um, I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it it again. Um, We had a a difficult circumstance uh, early on in our marriage where we were trying to decide you know, whether to have more kids. You know, we had Amy, we had Bradley. So we had, uh, you know, a boy and a girl. And uh, so as we're talking about this, you know, uh, we were not on the same page. And uh, I had all these arguments. Like, Bradley had just been born. And so I'm like, oh, man, we got to have more kids. You know, this is so great. And, you know, I'm gone a lot, but it's great. It's great to come home to this, right? (laughs) Right. Neither of us wanted kids like that month. Bradley was like a month old, right? So, so every time this came up, it became, a little, it became a little tense. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's wait till Bradley turns a year, and then we'll discuss it. And she goes, okay. So any time it came up, we would like, oh, no, we're going to wait and talk about that. Okay, good. So we deferred the discussion. And um, the, the time came where Bradley turned one. I was so excited for that birthday. I could hardly wait, you know? And we sit down. And I say, are you ready to have the conversation? You know, when you're one, you would still go to bed very early. So we had time. So I'm like, let's talk. And I'm, I mean, I've got the best arguments. I'm from a family of three children. Anita's from a uh, family of three children. Her younger sister is Linda. My little sister is Sharon. We love our sisters. We can't imagine life without them. So my number one argument is going to be, how could you deny our kids little Linda Sharon? <laughs> it's a good argument, right? I had a whole list of them. I was ready. I didn't bring paper with me. I memorized them. I was ready. And uh, so we sit down, and she says, I I do have a request. I said, what? She says, "Um, may I go first? And I think I actually said, sure, you can go first because there's nothing you can say that is going (laughs) to help you win this argument, you know? I didn't have to, you know, not that I wasn't thinking about pulling out the submission card, but, you know... which is not the way to do it, man. It's not the way. I'm not even mentioning that, right? She says she'd like to go first. I said, you're welcome to go first. And she looks at me, and I totally didn't expect it, blew all of my arguments out of the water, caused me to say I need to wait a couple weeks. Uh, She looked at me and she said, you're my husband, and I will submit to whatever you think is best for me. I'm like, no. <laughs> <want> Brian Zero. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know how to handle that. You know, I I need a couple of weeks, and I've got to pray, and I've got to, you know, and uh, and uh, about a week and a half later, before we regathered to discuss it, uh, she came to me with a little, a little. Like uh, looks like a COVID test now, but it has two lines on it, and <laughs> we were already pregnant. We were already pregnant when Bradley turned one. There's eighteen months, sixteen months between the boys, so we didn't know it. We didn't know it, so uh, God decided that one, and then we both wanted to have a fourth, and then she had a real difficult. Uh, we nearly lost her and Allison with our fourth, and so uh, we we you know we've got four kids. Did I win? Did I lose? I don't know. I mean, we won. We won, right? Benjamin and Allison, right? We both won. But when you think about that kind of attitude, it's so foreign that even me as a pastor, I did not expect it. And how beautiful is that? How sweet is that? How neglected is that in the world today? Look at the harmony in that, the harmony where I know I have to submit and sacrifice my own desires for what's best for her. Submission is a a secret weapon of the church that we neglect, and we allow the culture to tell us, oh, it's not that important. But we know that Scripture teaches about headship, not only in marriage, but we also know that um, uh, I want you to understand, Paul says, that Christ is the head of every man. And then he goes on and he says, and, 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 and he says that man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. And I want us to just take time initially here and talk about the fact that men don't skip that first example, that Christ is your authority, that you are accountable before God to be under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're one of these guys who says, all right, we're talking about roles and submission, you've got it wrong. Because Paul wants you to understand, first of all, Paul, writing on behalf of God, as an apostle, speaking authoritative words of God, that Christ is the head of every man. And whether you recognize it or not, Jesus Christ is the highest authority on the planet. He has authority over every man, whether he's a believer or unbeliever. And he declared that. Matthew 28, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Christ is the ultimate authority. You might meet people who say, well, I don't want Jesus as my authority. They may not want that now. But one day, they will bow to him whether they want it or not. The scripture is clear, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God and the Father. Everybody has an authority. Every man has an authority. And you may think that you are your own authority, but that's because, according to Ephesians chapter 2, you're following the course of this world which is set up by who? Satan. God has allowed Satan to have an influence in this world. And his system is set up to blind you, to deceive you, to think that you're in control, but ultimately every man either serves Satan or he serves himself. No, he serves God, sorry. Serves Satan or he serves God. Serving yourself is serving Satan's will. There is no middle ground. One day, the ruler of all, the one with ultimate authority, will come down, will judge Satan, will cast Satan into an eternal fire, and will gather all the nations, and every knee shall bow. Everyone will submit. There will be those who are saying, Holy, holy is the Lord, gracious, abundant in loving kindness and patience. And there are those who will bow as defeated rebels against God, never having repented and turned and trusted in him. And you have the opportunity today to see, men, which side you are on. Who really is the Lord of your life? Don't be deceived to think that you are the Lord of your life. Jesus Christ is Lord. You can rebel against that. You can think that it doesn't really apply to you or that you can live how you want to live, but you're following a different Lord, the Lord who is anti-Christ. And those of you who have already submitted to him and you've given your life to Christ, you've recognized that you're a sinner, you recognize that you have no no hope, that your life is, is meaningless, futile. Without submitting to the holy God that he is that Christ is your only hope that that you are a sinner and that God is holy, and that when you stand before him, He will not tolerate sin, and therefore you will not be able to stand in his presence as a sinner, and therefore you need a way for your sin to be dealt with, and it's God has provided Christ who took your sin if you've repented and trusted in Christ and paid for it in full on the cross and your sin was placed on the cross where he paid for it in full and his righteousness was taken out and placed into your account so that when God sees you, he says, Holy, clean, white, pure, sinless, no blemish, my child, welcome into your rest. This is the beauty of the gospel, the good news. And if you've done that, but you're so influenced by this world or the course of this world and your evil desires, which have hung over from your past life, that you're not really living in submission to Christ, you can expect that he would discipline you as any loving father would discipline his children. Hebrews 12, 11 through 14 All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification, that is, that being set apart, that growing in holiness without which no one will see the Lord. An evidence of genuine commitment to the Lordship of Christ is that you are pursuing peace with all men and sanctification. That is, I want to become more like Jesus Christ. So this day, men, before we get to anything about the authority that man has over a woman, recognize that you have an authority over you who is Jesus Christ and How you respond to him, there will be consequences in this world. And if you deny him as your authority, there will be consequences for eternity. This applies in so many areas of your life. You know, we we read about 1 Corinthians 14.35. Skip skip to First Corinthians fourteen thirty five there, because people will jump there, and it says First Corinthians fourteen thirty four says the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves as to law, as the law also says. And oftentimes when we're studying this passage in First Corinthians eleven, they skip to 1435, and say, well, why is Paul saying that women should be silent if here it says they prophesy? And we get caught up in this theological argument. Should women actually be um, you know, uh, able to teach uh, in, in a congregation of men and women or to prophesy or whatever this was? And those are questions we will answer. But don't get hung up on those questions. Look, first of all, at the first point of the principle, and look at, if you're going to look at verse, chapter 14, verse 34, take a look at verse 35. It says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. You know what that means? You know what that implies, men? You need to be able to answer any theological question that your wife has. And you are under the authority of your headship to make sure that that happens. If you don't know that, you don't know, you, don't know, you don't know the answer, it's time for you to learn so you can shepherd her. And Paul was, was in no way, um, and we'll, we'll get into this, no way was he expressing male chauvinism. In fact, in Jewish histori- uh, historical culture and in, in, in Greek historical culture, women were not allowed to learn. Women were seen as lesser. Paul says they are equal and yet we have different roles. This has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. It has everything to do with God's design for men and women and how they complement each other and give a picture of the image of God and his glory. So when, when we think about this, Christian men, as Titus 2, 1 and 2 says, should speak things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Not only that, every man should aspire to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. So Christ is the head of every man. A second example is the example of man, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman. Here's where the principle of authority applies, not just to husbands and wives, but to all men and all women. And I'm going to say this, God has designed society so that all women in general are submissive and have a submissive attitude before all men in general. That's kind of a bombshell. Because for years, you've known, okay, well, I'm supposed to be submissive to my husband and I'm supposed to be submissive you know in the church to the elders but but all women let I me mean, take a look at the text here the man is the head of a woman the idea here is there is a role for women in society that is different than the role for men in society i once had a q and a when i was a youth pastor Q&A before 50 junior hires. And if you, if you really want a good Q&A, go to a junior high Q&A. And uh, I was doing it with a fellow guy. He was a volunteer. He was a, a good guy, good Bible teacher, Christian man. Um, and uh, and um, we were taking questions, and one girl raises her hand and says, um, my parents told me what I could be whatever I want to be, but seems like you guys are teaching that if I want to be a pastor, I can't be a pastor of a church. And so my friend says, I got this one. So I said, okay, great. You take it, you know. And he said, well, the reason for that, obviously, is because the Bible teaches that boys are better than girls. And, you know, junior hires, you know what happens? Like half of them are like, whoa, you know, like this is like the greatest. And the girls are all, no way. And then he looks and he says, obviously, that's not true. Obviously, that's not true the bible can't teach that. He says so what does the bible teach about roles and they began to answer it and he gave a very great answer but he diffused the whole tension. We know that the bible doesn't teach about superiority of men or inferiority of women. Their status Galatians 3:28 is that there is neither male nor female. Their status before God, he does not discriminate. There is no better or worse. But when we look at this idea, we understand that there's nothing to do with intellect or ability or value or giftedness. There are many women who are more intelligent, more capable, more gifted in many areas than many men. And some of those women would say than most men, and they would be right. But God's Perfect design is that wives should be subject to their husbands and everything. Unmarried daughters are on the, under the authority of their fathers. And so you say, well, yeah, but okay, what about the woman who's never been married? You remember this woman? She's never been married. This is the fictitious woman in the argument. And she's 50 years old. And she's the CEO of her own company. And, um, you know, her father's dead or maybe he's an unbeliever and always gives advice that goes against Scripture. So does she submit to men? How does she submit to men, this woman? That's the question, right? Did I frame it fair enough? Because this is the hypothetical example. How does she submit to men? Well, if she is a believer, she has already laid down her life and she has submitted herself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ And therefore, she is attending a Bible-teaching church that worships and glorifies God the way he wants to be worshiped and glorified. And so she has a submissive attitude before all men in the way that she submits to God's word, in the way that she submits to those who are leaders in her church. She's different. She's different because she thinks about submitting to a husband if she was married. She thinks about submitting to um, uh, her father and desires and if he were alive or if he knew the Lord or how should I handle this. That's a tension in her. She considers that where everybody else in the world is like, ah, I'm my own boss. It's a difference in attitude. And if she's not a believer, then she needs to repent of her sins and trust in Christ. And so... Um, Yeah, this this principle, by the way, is not first found here in in this passage. It goes back to the creation order. And there are various passages in the New Testament which point back to them. One of them is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9. Take a look at that. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Woman for the man's sake. Wow, that put that on a bumper sticker. Um, does that teach that uh, there's in, there's inequality? No. Equality and authority can exist at the same time. If I were teaching in a classroom, and uh, I was a teacher, and uh, I'm at my desk. I'm busy with something, and a boy walks in the class first. And I could say, hey, Johnny, uh, I'm busy. Can you go to the podium, and can you take roll as people walk in? And he does that. And then I say, um, uh, next, a girl walks in a few minutes later, and I said, hey, Susie, uh, I really need the uh, whiteboard cleaned off. Can you take the eraser? and, and, And she goes, oh, figures, I'm the cleaner. Because he's a boy, he gets to do the, you know, intelligent job and take role. He can't even read. <laughs> you know? And I've got to take the, is that what this is about? No. If you would have walked in first, you would have taken role. I needed someone to take role, and since he was first, I gave him that job. I have the prerogative to do that because I'm the teacher. It has nothing to do with inequality or ability or anything. And for whatever reason, God decided to create man first and then woman to be a helpmate and to complete the creation order. And so man has certain responsibilities and women women have certain responsibilities and they will be held accountable before God and neither one of their responsibilities is easy. There's more I could say on that, but I want, I want to move and try and finish this last example in verse 3. We've seen the example of Christ. We've seen the example of man. But the third is the example of God. And God is the head of Christ. Christ submitted himself to the authority of God, and yet he was fully equal with God. Jesus Christ has never been inferior to God. So this, this should really, the parallelism should comfort you that somehow in this text, Though there are different roles and there are are times of submission and requirements of submission for women that may not be there for men in the same way, Christ, who is co-equal, co-eternal, co-reigning with God, he submitted to his head. He has never been inferior to God. That's true before his incarnation, during his incarnation, and since his ascension he has never been inferior to God. And yet, John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The, 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 the goal here and the 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 principle that is laid down, Paul says, I want you to understand this. Headship is something that all creation is involved in, including God himself. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. Now, it seems from the context of this passage that one of the difficulties in Corinth had to do with women not recognizing the authority of men and usurping that, in disgracing that themselves and their head in certain ways. And we're going to get into that, in, it looks like now, in the weeks to come. But, uh, but what I want you to see is this, this knowledge, this principle laid out here, the foundation of headship laid down there, because we're going to come back to it again and again and again. We've got a few minutes left. Any questions? Just about verses 2 and 3. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, good. Okay. So your question is from Ephesians 5.21, which is talking about mutual submission. What does mutual submission look like, and how does that work? We understand that it doesn't, you take a turn, I take a turn, but what does it look like? Okay. First of all, there's some grammar here. And those of you who were in Ephesians, you'd be familiar with this. But all that turns back to Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18, which is where the main verb is for that section. And it says that, be not drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled by the Spirit. And then it gives certain participles that talk about what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And it says, speaking to one another, singing, making melody in your heart, giving thanks, Right, Those are four participles. But the fifth participle is submitting to one another. So submission is a picture of somebody who's filled by the Spirit. And you cannot submit to one another. You cannot have a Christ. Uh, your, your marriage cannot be patterned after the biblical pattern for marriage if you are not filled with the Spirit, if you're not controlled by the Spirit, being obedient to the Spirit. It is essential in a marriage. You can't be a non-Christian and have a Christian marriage. But submission to one another, that mutual submission, uh, and the the way it's laid out is that wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially. So the way the husband submits is he submits putting himself last and the needs of his wife first and doing whatever glorifies God the most. And so he's not submitting to her. He's submitting to the Lord in a way that benefits her. Okay? There are two more examples given, one in chapter 5 of children and parents, or in chapter 6, and then, and then uh, slaves and masters or, or employee employees. So, but that whole picture are pictures of how the, the, the mutual submission works. Is that helpful? Does that answer your question? Kind of? hmm Well, yeah, that's a good question for next week. Uh, wow, look at the time. Uh, yeah. That is a good question. I'll open up that with that next week, okay? I do have a, a, a remedial answer, but I'll work on it some more. What is it For me in the church, what does it look different in my submission to a woman as opposed to a man? Okay? Remind me of that. We'll start. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. We we do thank you for this passage, and we thank you for um, your word. Help us to read it fresh as coming from the very lips of God, Um, a word that was written for us, for our benefit. Help us not to let the culture influence us in the way we might read it or accept it but help us first and foremost to see it the way you would want it to be delivered to the church. We commit this to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.